Well, before jumping in, I want to thank Mitch. He doesn't take any credit for this, <clears throat> but he deserves it. it. That bumper, this is a one-week deal, and he put that together, gave me an outline so that my screens look nice. I mean, I wanted to just say thank you to Mitch. And the songs that we sang, we, he knows what the subject's going to be, and it's just amazing to me how the scripture that was read and the songs that we sung are just going to be right on. It's like they were in my notes. This, earlier this summer, I was scrolling YouTube, as many of us do, and I was just basically looking for anything worth watching. And I happened along a sermon by Vody Bauckham, and if you're not familiar with Vody, he, he's just really, he's one of my alumni from Southeastern. He's just really an amazing speaker. And he had, a, he had a sermon on why the good news is so good. And it was literally one of the most brilliant summary survey sermons on the book of Ephesians I had personally ever heard. It was just great. And we have an opportunity this morning. I have an opportunity, and John said, go for it. You know, that we're between books. We're almost never between books. <laughs> you know, and I told him about what, the, you know, what, I, had, what I had watched, and <clears throat> he said, well, go for it. It sounds good. It's a lot. <laughs> because we, we're not going to do the whole book, okay? Relax. I'm going to get you out of here. But... Being between books, we're going to use that sermon as our guide to take a quick look at the book of Ephesians and why, according to it, the good news is so good. We're going to outline the entire book, and we're only going to look, we're expository here, we're basically going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1 and a few verses in, in chapter 4. For reasons that I hope will become obvious along the way. I should also mention that if you have seen Vody's sermon on YouTube, you will quickly realize I'm using a bit more than just his outline. And I'm, I've, I've been at uh, least familiar enough with plagiarism to know that if you cite the source, it's not plagiarism. So thank you, Vody. I've also included a link in the bottom of the app to the sermon. I recommend that you see his version of it. It's better than mine's going to be. But it's, there's also some additional material that, it, that you'll find down there that I would have loved to have gotten to, but I wanted to get you out of here before noon. So we've got a lot to cover. Let's pray and get on with it. Father, <clears throat> you are the way maker. You're the one who's done the work. We are just the beneficiaries of it. I'm grateful for this opportunity to take a quick look at the book of Ephesians, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless it and that your Holy Spirit would speak through me and say the words that need to be heard, not the ones that are just on my mind. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. In everyday life, we face many temptations. Speaking for myself, my liberty even after salvation, provide the majority of my everyday challenges. The quote that may be on the screen captures it quite well. But I read another one just last night, so I had to get it in here. It's that freedom is the power to, or the right to act, speak, or think 
as one wants. Where liberty is to be free from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority on one's way of life. They're different. They're thought of synonymous, synonymously a lot, but they're, they're quite different. And we have many freedoms in Christ, but contrary to what many claim, our liberty is actually more extensive. Because God's commands aren't oppressive restrictions. Quite the opposite as far as I'm concerned. Liberty raises questions like, is this what God wants us to do? God has granted his creatures an enormous amount of liberty. And it goes something like this. Do I go left or right? Or for you, left or right? Chocolate, vanilla. This playlist or that? It's on and on and on. Choices, choices, choices. The challenges for Christians in all that liberty is simply this. Does a choice honor God? Is this choice righteous or unrighteous? What God reminds us in the book of Ephesians is frankly pretty disturbing. And it is simply this. All choices, all of them, apart from the saving work of Christ, are unrighteous. All we need to do is just read Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, Ephesians 4, 24, to, to make that perfectly clear. Even Peter weighed in on it in 1 Peter 3, 18, when he cited the great exchange that Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Accordingly, all choices apart from the saving work of Christ are unrighteous as far as God's concerned. As far as God is concerned, Jesus is the deciding factor regarding righteousness with him, whether something is right with God. Now, for some of us, that might seem outrageous. That's because many, if not most of us, were taught about God and his righteousness, but we weren't taught about it from the Bible. For many of us, we've been taught cultural interpretations of righteousness, possibly guided by some measure of scripture, but if we're dead honest, we'd have to concede that no matter how well-intentioned, much of what we think about God and his righteousness is quite different from what you're going to find in Scripture. Take good works, for example. Pretty much all of us would agree that providing drinking water, clothing, food, and shelter for those who need it would be a good work. Unfortunately, none of those make the good news good. Because you can be clothed, fed, and sheltered and still go to hell. None of us want that. So why is it then so many of the types of efforts you see going on in mission and in churches is basically those kinds of works? There's clearly a disconnect between our understanding of what makes the good news 
good and what makes good works good and our understanding of people's greatest need. People's greatest need is not Maslow's hierarchy of need. Despite all the possibilities, the single greatest need of every person ever born, it was mentioned earlier, is to be reconciled with God. But you'd hardly know it by the things that we're so busy doing most of the time. This can't be overstated. According to God's word, the only way to be reconciled with him is in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. I bet you're wondering if I'm ever going to get to Ephesians, aren't you? Paul illustrates this beautifully in the book of Ephesians. The book is divided symmetrically in half. The first half is about our calling. The second about our conduct. The first half is about right believing. The second about right behavior. The first half of, about indicatives and the second about imperatives. What? Those last two were new to me. I don't know if they were new to you. But those were the ones that Dr. Bacham pointed out that from the book of Ephesians, it is vitally important to keep these two in mind if you're going to get the most out of reading the book and all of Scripture for that matter. Because indicatives are the things that God has accomplished on our behalf in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that a lot. That's who we are, just like the song we just sang, because of what God has accomplished on our behalf in Jesus. Those in this context are the indicatives. The imperatives are what we are called and able to do, should do, must do, I could say, as a direct result, and don't miss this, as a direct result of what? The indicatives. The two are inseparable. If we don't keep them straight, we're apt to confuse what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces. All the gospel requires is repentance and faith. That's it. Nothing else. Some might ask, but what about obedience? Obedience is not a requirement. Obedience is what the gospel produces. If obedience were a requirement, then we could be obedient apart from the person and work of Jesus, and he would have had died for nothing. Does the gospel produce obedience? Absolutely, as it should be. Joyful obedience, I might add. And if we get these mixed up, it can easily produce legalism, moralism, and works-based righteousness, which is a lot of what we see. Which makes the first half of Ephesians so amazing. In the first half, if you really read it slow enough, you won't find a single imperative. Not one thing God demanding of you in the first half of the book. And which is really cool to me is that Paul, the first word in chapter 4 when he moves into the imperatives is the word therefore. Now we'll come back to that because you know I love stuff like that. But we'll come back to that shortly. This morning we're going to spend more time working on our ability to recognize imperatives in scripture. 
We must be able to recognize indicatives from imperatives if we're going to understand why the good news is so good. So, how do we do that? Well, around here we go to Scripture. So normally, normally, now we'd read the first 11 verses of Ephesians. And if you prefer to actually see the first 11 verses, they are, they, you can get them. There's a link in the app to them. But since this is a weekend of doing things differently, we're going to do this differently too. Because I find that sometimes just hitting highlights can be incredibly instructive. And Vody thinks so too, so we're going to try that. They should be on the screen, and they'll also be in the app if you want to go back and take a look at these later and spend some more time with them. Here we go. Verse 3, he has blessed us. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 6, he has blessed us. Verse 8, he lavished upon us. Verse 9, he made known to us. Verse 11, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. These are all the things in those first 11 verses that God has done. He did it. The good news is so good because of what God has done. And it's so good because we weren't asked to do them. Because we couldn't. They're only things that God himself could have done. None of us are capable of doing what God has done. That's why it's such good news. Now, we're going to take another pass at these verses again, this time to emphasize what God did for you and me in Christ. Here we go. Verse 3, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Verse 4, chose us in him. Verse 5, he predestined us through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he blessed us, how? In the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, how? Through his blood. Verse 9, making known the mystery of his will, which he set forth, how? In Christ. Verse 10, in him. Verse 11, in him. You get the point? There's even more in verse 12 and verse 13. The good news is so good because God did what needed to be done for us in Christ. In just the first 11 verses of this letter, Paul provides everything necessary for salvation. Everything necessary for everyone to be reconciled with him. God did it. He did all of it for us in Christ. And I should note that the entire rest of the letter is tied directly to what Paul has laid out in these first 11 verses. It truly is. Here at Grace, especially if you go through Intro to Grace, here's the commercial. It's coming up next week. If you want to know more about us here, I invite you to participate in that. You might have seen the bumper for that. We refer to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, and I in particular, as the bullseye of our theological foundation for all that we do here at Grace to honor God. 
that our salvation is by grace, that we are saved by grace through faith, not just any faith, not blind faith, faith in Christ, what he has done for us, that we have been saved by grace through faith, that, and this is not of our own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works that anyone should be able to boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a mouthful, but it's really awesome. These verses are really, truly, to me, they're the ultimate indicatives. They're in the ultimate in what something is. What that is, is what God has done for us. It doesn't stop there. In chapter 2, verse 13, we have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Ever wondered why we sing so much about the blood? No blood, no forgiveness. Whose blood? His blood. Chapter 3, verse 6, the mystery of how Gentiles, how a Gentile like me and possibly you, could be fellow heirs solved as partakers in the promise of Christ in the gospel. Verse 12, our boldness and access to the throne room of God can be with confidence. Why? Through faith in him. It's endless. And these are just the highlight reel. I'm cherry picking here. There are plenty more, all indicatives, all things done for us in and through the work and the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In Christ alone. All the imperatives, all the must-dos, all the good works outlined from chapter 4 on are literally meaningless if we don't have a proper grasp on the indicatives. A proper understanding that as far as God is concerned, none of what Paul details from chapter 4 on matter at all in his throne room until we accept what he has done on our behalf in and through his son, Jesus. None of it. That's startling. Now, certainly not meaningless. If your goal is civil behavior, Merely for folks to get along, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better handbook than the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Now, there are many that in our modern day, here particularly in the West, that would argue with that, but it's really, it's a great guidebook for how people can get on with one another. But too much emphasis on the behavior subjects in the last half of Ephesians can result in people thinking that if they do all of those things that God will be good with them. Right? That God will be pleased with them and welcome them into heaven. Well, they'd likely be lovely people and great neighbors, but they ain't getting into heaven. And that is startling to a lot of people, but it shouldn't be because it's all laid out here in the book. It's why Paul writes so strongly at the beginning of Galatians that if anyone preaches, preaches another gospel, even if it's an angel, they should be what? Cursed. 
The good news is, isn't good news at all if it isn't based solely on the completed work of Christ that's outlined for us in Ephesians 1 through 3. We bring absolutely nothing apart from our surrender, which I want to make sure you understand is not a work. Your surrender is merely an acknowledgement of what God has done for you. Remember, every knee shall what? Bow and every tongue what? Confess that what? Accept Jesus as Lord, then all the wonderful things you can do, all the works set out for us by God in Ephesians 2.10 become potentially righteous works. Now, I say potentially because even after salvation, your motives matter. Once Jesus is Lord of your life, then your works can be meaningful in heaven and for the kingdom. But they won't be righteous if you grab the glory. Now, I wish I had time to go into that more, but here's what I'm going to say. I invite you to take some time with Scripture on the subject of humility, particularly in the New Testament. It will straighten out your wrong thinking with regard to who gets glory for what and whether it's a righteous act or it isn't. But I think what you'll find is that there's even more really good news. Hopefully I've made an adequate case and it's been made to ensure that you have to get the indicatives nailed down before you busy yourselves with the imperatives. We're going to wrap up this really fast look at the book of Ephesians with just a glimpse, three verses, to see how Paul transitions from the indicatives to the imperatives. I mentioned earlier, he begins the book with the word therefore. Some of your translations might have the word then. It's an interesting fact. In the original, the word that's translated therefore appears 500 times in the New Testament, over 500 times, and 300 or so of them, therefore, majority of them, therefore. The others, mostly the word then. Now, if you're a left-brainer and you're a fan of deductive reasoning, you're familiar with something called the if-then clause, right? It's the workhorse of all deductive reasoning. So I posit this. If chapters 1 through 3, then chapters 4 through 6, therefore, because of all the things I've written for you in the first three chapters, all those indicatives, therefore, Paul, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called after having been made the case for what God has done for us in the first three chapters, Paul moves from our calling to how we ought to walk. We ought to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. How do we do that? Verse 2. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in what? In the bond of peace. 
And that, brothers and sisters, is a beautiful summation of all of those imperatives. Because I think we can get a little bit too locked in and say, well, here's what he said we're supposed to do. We go, we go, go you know, kind of, okay. Yep, it's all detailed. It's all there. How wives and husbands ought to get along with one another. How they're to be towards their kids. How masters are supposed to get on. How we're supposed to stand for the word. And all, all of those awesome things. Right? But we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace as we work out our salvation righteously according to God's definition of righteousness. So how are we going to button this up? Head. Memorize the essentials of the indicatives. I would invite you to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 very slowly. Slow enough to drink in how what really matters is what God has done on your behalf in and through the work of Jesus Christ. It's important. Heart. Examine the motives behind all of your efforts on your imperatives. Presuming that you're even trying, why are you trying? Is it with a joyful heart? Is there joyful obedience to what God has laid out? If not, if no joy, not really, then I would refer you back to my recommendation regarding head. Slow down. Take a look at verses 1 through 10 again in, verse, in chapter 1. It's really important. Hands. Prioritize the kingdom in your daily life. If you accept what God has done on your behalf, then live like it. Seriously. Your friends, even some of your Christian friends, should think you're a little weird. For real. That's what Peter meant in 1 Peter 2.9 when he said that we who believe are a peculiar people. It's a really fun word if you really want to get, take it apart. But I will say that Paul added in Titus 2.14 that we're to be so peculiar that our zealous works, they're not just supposed to be going through the motions. They're supposed to be you're all in on it. Zealous works, our efforts on the imperatives should be noticed because you're so weird. You know, there's a lot of boring Christians out there. You know, we've met them. I think it's because they really haven't fully embraced the beauty of what God has done for them. And that they're still trying to balance this act and straddling that proverbial fence, trying to have more of the world and as much as they can of the world while still being a, a citizen of heaven and being involved in the kingdom. I'm telling you, it's eye-opening just the book of Ephesians. The rest of Scripture, honestly, truthfully, you know, I just whizzed through the book in a, in a sort of summary fashion. Didn't even touch on it. But it's a great book. But then again, I could say that about any of the books that we park and we go through. I mean, it's just all, it's God's word. It's his love letter to us to get us to focus on him 
and his son and the kingdom and do our very best to minimize how the world will be tearing us down. Are your good, zealous works noticeable? Are you doing it with a smile? Are they acts of kindness? Are you doing it with joy? Are they based on the indicatives? If not, I invite you to come see any one of us, John, Mitch, Jeremy, me, elders, and we'll all be delighted to talk. You gotta talk about it. You're invited to talk about it. If you think some of the things I've said this morning are outrageous, they, well, okay, maybe. But that's okay. Because if we disagree, we'll go to God's word and we'll figure it out. Right? Because I will tell you, Vodi Bakum is a really godly man. I do my very best to be a godly man. We don't have all the answers. We don't have it all right. But we're trying. We want to. Why? Because it gives us great joy. And that's what John and I, when we're up here, we're giving you the word. We want you to have that joy. And that's a joy that's only possible in and through the completed work of his son. Then you get it all. You get it all. Let's pray. Father, I hope you've been honored by this quick look at the book of Ephesians. And I thank you for it and for the songs that you put on the worship team's heart to, to, to complement this quick, brief look at the book of Ephesians. Thank you for it and all of your word. Thank you for your love and your patience with us. And um, pray your blessing on the remainder of this weekend. And may we take the time in K-Group to kind of talk through what, what has been said and make sure that we're in step with what you want, your best for us, for I pray it all in Jesus' name.